Welcome to Conversations from the Pale Blue Dot. Today I interview philosopher Valerie Tiberius. Being a reflective person doesn't mean thinking all the time. That's, that's not a good reflective life. That's a kind of narcissistic self-obsession or rationalistic fetishism or, or something like that. If you like the show and want it to continue, do me a favor and write a kind review on iTunes or send the link to a friend. And now, my interview with Valerie Tiberius. Dr. Valerie Tiberius is an associate professor of philosophy at the University of Minnesota and the author of several books and articles on ethics and well-being. Valerie, welcome to the show. Thank you. Valerie, much of your research concerns this idea of well-being. It seems like well-being has been at the center of lots of different moral theories in the history of philosophy. Could you give us some examples of how this idea of well-being comes into play? It's actually a little bit tricky to trace the concept through history because there are different related concepts that at different periods have been highlighted. So mm-hmm. well-being, that, that term is actually fairly recent, but in some ways it's very, it's in the same family of goods or values as happiness and, uh, eudaimonia, which is the ancient word for human flourishing. So in the ancient period, ethics was entirely about eudaimonia or flourishing, which you know, some people would translate that as well-being. Ethical theories were really just about what it is to flourish as a human being. That was the whole purpose of ethical theorizing. And then, of course, in the late 18th and then into the 19th century, utilitarians were concerned with happiness, which is at least probably a component of well-being, or some people think but they're the same thing. There's some controversy there. But the utilitarian picture was that what we ought to do is to maximize, produce as much as possible of whatever it is that's good in the world. Mm -hmm. And they thought it was pretty obvious that the only thing that's good for its own sake and worth promoting for its own sake is happiness. So obviously that gave them a concern about what happiness is and how it can be measured and how it can be added up and maximized. And are there more recent theories that also incorporate notions of well-being? There are still a lot of utilitarians. The utilitarians from the 19th century tended to be hedonists and to think that happiness is the, the greatest good and what happiness is is basically pleasure. Currently, there aren't very many hedonists anymore. There aren't very many people who think that happiness is the same thing as pleasure. There are even fewer people who think that well-being is the same thing as pleasure, and very few who think that what uh, moral theory should be concerned with alone is pleasure. So now, the kinds of utilitarians there are tend to think about preference satisfaction or desire satisfaction as the good that's to be maximized, Mm -hmm. or sometimes the satisfaction or meeting of interest. Peter Singer, that's somebody I think a lot of people have heard about. Mm -hmm. His view about what ought to be maximized makes use of this concept of an interest. You know, I don't know that he says this, but I think that would be his view about what well-being is, that well-being is getting your interest met. Different creatures have different interests, of course, but according to Singer, all the interests of all the creatures who have them matter as far as moral theory goes. So there's the way that utilitarianism has developed into current contemporary philosophy, 
But then there are a lot of people who are just, who've become interested in the notion of well-being sort of for its own sake because it's an interesting concept. Mm -hmm. So they're not necessarily utilitarians who think that this is what has to be maximized, but they're interested in exploring what it is and, you know, in the wake of the kind of general rejection of hedonism, people are trying to figure out what the best theory is that's not hedonistic. Utilitarianism is the theory right now that really puts happiness or well-being right at the center and says, this is what all moral action is about. It's about producing this stuff. But any moral theory is going to include some obligations to promote the interests of other people or to promote the welfare of other people. So even a Kantian moral theory would say we do have some obligations of beneficence to help out other people. And if we do have obligations of beneficence, we need to know what it means to promote somebody else's good. And that question, what does it mean to promote someone else's good, is really just the question, what is well-being? Well, you spoke about studying well-being for its own sake because it's an interesting concept. And some researchers who do so will break down well-being into one of three different models, hedonism, eudaimonism, and life satisfaction view. And we've spoken about hedonism already. What are those other two? So that generally, that's the way that psychologists categorize the um, theories of, of well-being. There are psychological life satisfaction theories and there are philosophical life satisfaction theories. Huh. So let me say a little bit about the psychology research first. So psychologists, I think partly they love life satisfaction because it's easy to measure. It's a kind of overall judgment or assessment about how your life is going. And the thought is that what it is to achieve well-being is to achieve a state where you are satisfied with the overall conditions of your life. So life satisfaction is a subjective kind of theory. It identifies well-being with a subjective feeling or assessment. Eudaimonism is, there are a couple of different ways of thinking about eudaimonism for psychologists. Some of them think of it as flourishing, where it's a kind of objective matter of positive psychological functioning. So psychologists will list these psychological functionings that people could have, like personal growth and relations with others, purpose in life, and then measure how well do people function according to those dimensions. And then there's well-being as self-realization, which involves some objective components of uh, psychological functioning and also some a subjective component, which is um, it's really eudaimonistic feelings. So, like the feeling of flow that um, mm. a lot of that's become a kind of uh, it's gotten taken up in the popular press lately. This idea of flow, where you feel completely absorbed in some uh, experience because you're engaging your skills and capacities. Um, so some of the psychologists who favor a eudaimonist theory of well-being, they think of it still in, a, in subjective terms, but the subjective state that they're interested in is not pleasure, but something else like flow or a subjective feeling of flourishing. So that's the way I've seen psychological theories broken down. In philosophy, the, the kind of in the, the tradition, in the, in the literature, 
you see the theories categorized this way, hedonism, desire satisfaction, and objectivist theories. That's the sort of Derek Parfit set up that trichotomy, and it's been taken up and used by lots of people. You'll notice that both psychological theories and philosophical theories have hedonism as one of the views, so that's kind of always there. But one of the theories, the desire satisfaction theory that's very popular in philosophy doesn't appear on the list of theories that psychologists are interested in. Nevertheless, it has been a very popular view in philosophy that well-being is essentially getting what you want. Mm -hmm. That's also a really popular view. In fact, it's probably the view in economics. Getting your preferences satisfied is Mm. the good. One thing to know that it's a a kind of important point about uh, philosophical theories like that is that most philosophers who favor that sort of theory have abandoned the idea that it's just Whatever you actually happen to want, that's what's good for you. Usually, philosophers will say that the preferences we're talking about have to be, have to meet some conditions. And one condition that most people suggest is that your preferences have to be relatively informed. So, you know, to give a kind of silly example, let's say there's a glass of clear liquid in front of you and you you want to take a drink, but you're misinformed because you think that what's in that clear glass is uh, is water, but in fact it's gasoline. Well, no one's going to say it would be good for you to get what you want, namely a drink out of that glass. What they would say instead is, well, what's good for you is to get what you would want if your desires were informed. And if your desires were informed, you would not want to drink out of that glass because it actually has gasoline in it. I mean, that's kind of a simplistic example, Mm -hmm. but it sort of shows the point of saying that it just can't be your actual preferences that determine what your well-being is because people's preferences can be really screwy. Uh, so, So we have to think about idealizing the preferences in some way. So philosophers, you know, there are still hedonists in philosophy. There are a lot of people who favor some kind of desire or preference satisfaction view. I'd actually lump Peter Singer in there probably. And then the third type of theory that Parfit listed was he called objective list theory. Um, it, I think calling it that sort of puts a negative light on it because it, it um, he was thinking of theories where it's just a, the theory is just a list of objective goods. Could be that pleasure might be on that list, pleasure, knowledge, um, you know, self, self-approval or whatever's on the list. Artistic achievement or, uh, using your skills. It could be, you know, there, there's a lot of variation about what kinds of objective goods you might have on your list. Mm-hmm. But a list isn't really a theory. I, I think it's a little unfair to just call these theories, objective list theories, because many of them have explanations for why those things are on the list, and that's Mm -hmm. what makes it a theory. Objective list makes it sound just arbitrary when very often justification is given. That's exactly right. So uh, I think a number of people have pointed this out about Parfit's taxonomy, that the fact that he uses the phrase objective list makes it sound like 
keep sort of insulting those kinds of views when they really have more going for them. Yeah, Parfit is not a member of that category. No, he's not. He's in the desire satisfaction category. And um, the other thing about this Parfit's list is it leaves out life satisfaction theories um, because life satisfaction isn't the same. Uh, it's not hedonism. It's not the same as pleasure because it's this kind of, it is a subjective theory, but it's a, it's uh, the subjective state of life satisfaction is a kind of global assessment of your life as opposed to a, a momentary pleasure. And it might be that the reason that doesn't appear in Parfit's list is that the person who really brought life satisfaction theories to the fore in philosophy is Wayne Sumner. And I think the timing of it, you know, I think Sumner's book came out after uh, Parfit wrote this taxonomy, which then got repeated by lots of other people. So probably life satisfaction theories didn't actually have much um, grip in, in the philosophical literature until mm -hmm. after Parfit wrote this list. Well, very interesting. So if we are trying to put together a model of what we mean by well-being, it would seem like culture would have a big influence. I mean, I'm sure different cultures have different notions of what well-being is, right? Right. I, so I actually think, I mean, certainly if you look at the psych literature, there, there's huge attention to culture there. And one of the things that psychologists are particularly interested in is uh, whether but taking a standard measure, like, like their life satisfaction measures, um, are different cultures or different societies or different countries happier than others? Do they achieve more well-being than others? And what are the variables that affect how high different cultures get on these various happiness scales? But I'm inclined to think that at the level of abstraction at which the philosophical theories are operating, I'm not sure how much the cultural differences really matter. So, so just to take some examples, you think about a philosophical, an objective theory like Martha Nussbaum's. So Martha Nussbaum has a view that she actually doesn't use the word well-being for various reasons, but, but she would say that the good for a person, what, what, uh, a good life for a person is one in which they, um, achieve human functionings and she gives a list of these key human functionings there life bodily health integrity uh imagination and thought emotions practical reason affiliation play political and mater material control over your environment i think i might have missed a couple but that's that's the basic uh list of of functionings and she makes quite an effort to demonstrate that these functionings are have cross-cultural relevance. So she's actually interviewed people in uh, lots of other cultures besides Western cultures to see that p these uh, kinds of functionings are things that, you know, people really do care about. So one thing to notice is that those functionings she lists are all very abstractly described, right? I mean, she talks about practical reason and political control mm -hmm. over one over your environment well that could mean many many different things depending on what your circumstances are so i think at the level of the abstract theory cultural differences aren't that important but as soon as you try to apply the theory 
if you wanted to take Martha Nussbaum's theory and use it to construct a, a political policy or or a, a you know a public program or even to use it in your own life to apply, then I think cultural differences are going to and even individual differences are going to make a huge difference. Similarly, for subjectivist kinds of theories, like if you think about uh, life satisfaction theory, life satisfaction is, according to that kind of a theory, that's going to be a good thing for anyone to experience no matter what culture they're in. But obviously, what the causes are of someone's having a life where they feel yeah. satisfied with the overall conditions, that's going to depend, you know, culture is going to have a huge effect on what conditions produce that kind of feeling. So so I actually think that where the cultural differences are going to be more most important is kind of farther down the road from the theories that philosophers are, are working on. It's going to have to do with how we apply the theories. Now, I'd like to jump back to ethics for just a moment. I am personally very interested in the way that empirical research can have an effect on moral philosophy. And so what I'd be interested to know here is how might empirical research on the nature of well-being that's coming from psychologists come into play when constructing moral theories? For example, there might be certain moral theories in philosophy that don't fit very well with the empirical data on what well-being is, uh, but maybe there are other philosophical theories that fit better with the empirical data on well-being. Do you think that's true yet? Maybe enough research hasn't been done. I, I don't know. So partly I'm inclined to think that because philosophical theories are operating at a high level of abstraction, they're not going to be falsified by empirical data. But it might be that there are some philosophical theories that make empirical assumptions that turn out to be false. That that could be. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm I don't think I have a a good argument for saying that that's true. But that that certainly could be true. I think actually, I mean, this, there's a a kind of relationship between empirical theories and philosophical theories that I'm in a way. Um, more worried about, which has to do with, and maybe this is because my training's in philosophy and not psychology, uh, but I, but it sometimes seems to me that, um, psychological research on well-being ignores questions about the, uh, normativity of what they're measuring. So, to put that another way, well-being is just a word. I mean, I think the way it's perceived and the way, it, what it's taken to mean, it's, supposed to be something good. It's worth promoting. And in philosophy uh, jargon, that means it's a normative concept. It's not purely descriptive. So psychologists, when they measure stuff, like they measure pleasure or life satisfaction or positive emotions on a scale, um, they don't want to be measuring anything normative because that's fuzzy and debatable, and they want to operationalize basic psychological concepts that mm. um, that that they you know that are purely empirical, uh, which makes sense for their purposes. But when their work starts to become the basis for moral action, like public policy or therapy, therapeutic interventions, or um, 
self-help programs that get promoted for people. You know, here's something you should do. This will be good for you to do. Um, then I think there's a there's a kind of jump that needs to be justified or at least noticed between uh, research that says, here are some empirically measurable concepts, and we've learned how to make more of these things. We know how to increase people's positive affect. But what we need to know in order to make the leap from there to moral conclusions about what people ought to do or what states, governments ought to do for their citizens, we need some argument that these things are good and worth promoting for people and that it's worth you know, sacrificing other stuff that we could be promoting for the sake of making more of of whatever it is, positive affect or uh, pleasure. I think it's perfectly fair for psychologists to measure things that are not normative, and that's what science needs to do. But when they draw conclusions from that empirical research that are normative, conclusions about how we ought to treat other people or how government government policy ought to be written, then I think we really, I think we ought to confront that there norms are being built in here somewhere. And it's really, I think that's where philosophical theorizing can actually be helpful. So it's not that I think psych- psychologists are doing terrible things. It's just, I think that um, there's a role for philosophical argument there. When you are going to make claims about what is it that increases positive affect? You know, that's a descriptive scientific question. Um, but then when we're going to decide to um, how we ought to develop uh, public policy or something, there's a leap from is to ought there that is the purview of philosophy. Exactly. I mean, you know, of course, I like to think it's the purview of philosophy because I'm a philosopher. People, <laughs> other people might disagree, but it is it is true that psychologists back away from uh, those kinds of philosophical questions because it's not their training, it's not their bailiwick. So I think when it comes to these sorts of questions about what to do with the well-being research in psychology, it would kind of be nice if philosophers and psychologists worked together and talked a bit more. Here's a kind of example that might help um, illustrate this point a little bit. Here's some a couple of worries with applying well-being theories. One worry is paternalism. That's a worry for objective theories. You've got this objective theory that says, hey, here's your list of objective goods. People achieve well-being when they get these goods. And the worry is if you go around um, promoting that theory or applying that theory in the world, uh, you're going to end up basically, to, um, to put it starkly, shoving goods down people's throats who don't want them. Would the worry be that, for example, maybe in some cultures they – don't agree that political control over your environment is a good and there may be more kind of communal or anarchist. Exactly. Yep. Absolutely. Right. And I mean, even you don't even need to go to other cultures because there could be individual people in our culture who don't agree that these objective goods are all good for them. Mm-hmm. But other cultures makes the point really clearly, I think. So then subjective theories face the problem of adaptive preferences. And the idea here is, look, I might be satisfied with my life or I might have all my desires met. And so I've achieved a kind of subjective well-being because 
I've just adapted to my super crappy circumstances. You know, maybe I've lived a life where I have very few options and I've never had many options and I'm just good at living, you know, when life gives you lemons, make lemonade, right? And so maybe that's my attitude. Well, a, a theorist about well-being, you don't quite want to say, oh, things for Valerie are going extremely well, even though she's oppressed and has no options, because she she feels good about it. She's adapted to her crappy circumstances. So the problem of adaptive preferences is a, is a problem that really hits subjective theories. Yeah. The example that comes to my mind there is a lot of Muslim women in the Muslim world where many of them will actually report very high life satisfaction if they're asked, but their objective circumstances are very poor um, by pretty much anyone's list. And so you wonder, you know, is it really, you know, are they really well off? Are they really experiencing a lot of well-being to be um, oppressed and have no power and no freedom and be taught by their religion and their male counterparts and their scripture that they are inferior and inherently wicked and have to be contained, you know? I mean, is this really well-being? Right. So that's exactly the kind of example that gets talked about in this discussion about adaptive preferences, exactly. And now they might be be achieving very high levels of well-being. I'm Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that they aren't. It's just that there's kind of an open question about whether the subjective feelings of satisfaction are really, you know, determinative, whether they're really authoritative about these uh, normative questions. So, so we have these two problems, paternalism for objective theories and adaptive preferences for subjective theories. And I guess, you know, my point about the empirical and the philosophical is that you can't steer your way through these problems without some good philosophy to help us understand how to how to avoid them. I actually think that, you know, we talked before about how in philosophy, subjective theories typically idealize in some way the subjective states that are relevant. And I think those kinds of idealized subjective theories are actually um, pretty successful at avoiding the two horns there, the, the, those two problems of paternalism and adaptive preferences. So does that mean that's the kind of model of well-being that you find to be most useful or most correct or something like that? It is actually, yeah. Um, I, I think that these idealized subjective models are on the right track. So what do you mean by idealized subjective theory? What's an example? Right. So here's the easiest example to explain. And I mentioned this one before. It would be informed desire theory, informed desire satisfaction. What's good for you is what you would want if you were fully informed. That's the simplest picture. So getting what you happen to want at the moment, that's not necessarily good for you. But what you would want if you were informed about your options, that's good for you. On that informed desire satisfaction view, I would imagine it's not assumed there that if we were all perfectly well informed that we would have the same desires, right? It's Correct. still it's still subjective, but um, yep. so it's not like an ideal observer theory in uh, in ethics, but it's right. uh, it just means you know if you knew that glass was gasoline, you wouldn't want to drink it anymore. Exactly. Yeah. 
So and you're kind of touching on something there that's the reason why that version of idealized subjective theories isn't my favorite, which is this idea of what you would want if you were fully informed. It's a little bit tricky. I mean, what is being fully informed? Is it being omniscient? Well, who the heck knows what I'd want if I were omniscient? I mean, if I knew absolutely everything, uh-huh. would I? how would that change my uh, subjective desires? It's so there, there's been a lot of literature on, there have been a number of articles on that full information idea that caused some serious problems for it. Yeah, if fully informed means omniscient, that would seem to mean, well, we have a concept of well-being, but we can't ever know if we are <laughs> yes. well-being. Indeed, that is another problem, the sort of epistemic access to it, right? So people have uh, pointed out that problem, but they've also pointed out that even if we could imagine a fully informed version of ourselves, it seems like there's so much distance between me and that omniscient being that that omniscient being's desires don't really have that much to do with me anymore. And that starts to make it look like getting that those omniscient yeah. desires satisfied isn't going to do me any good, right? Yeah. My, the theory that, that I like is a life satisfaction theory. And essentially, I think life satisfaction of a certain kind, life satisfaction according to certain standards that are provided by a person's values, that's what well-being is. So to just to try to put it kind of intuitively the idea is your life goes well for you if you have a good sense of what matters in life and you feel good about your life because you're achieving it. That's the kind of nutshell version. Okay. Valerie, that's been a very interesting discussion of well-being, and I'd like to end with a broader question about philosophy in general. Philosophy is considered the love of wisdom. What do you think that it means to live your life wisely? Interestingly, I think I actually got into wisdom by way of well-being because I started to think that coming up with a a, a really meaty substantive theory about well-being is not well, I almost thought it's kind of a non-starter that you know we can we can come up with a good abstract theory of well-being but to come up with the details is really something that individual people living their lives have to do. And that got me thinking about what it is to figure out how to live your own life. So I, I kind of came to wisdom through thinking about well-being and realizing that a philosopher can't tell people what a good life is for them. A philosopher can make some generalizations, but if you want to actually live your own life well, wisdom is the thing that's needed. What you asked me, what is it? What do I think it means to live your life wisely? The first thing to say is that one thing that seems absolutely clear is that if you think you're wise, you're probably not, which makes me always reluctant to say anything about what wisdom is with any certainty. But with that uh, qualification in mind, there there are a couple things I've emphasized in in the work that I've done so far on wisdom, and one of them is the importance of having a reflective practice that makes sense of all the various things that we value in life and tries to put them in some kind of order. But at the same time, and this I tried to emphasize equally, that practice of reflection, of thinking about what matters in life has to not take over your life. So I've I've tried to emphasize the importance of 
being reflective, but only sometimes. And at other times <laughs> in life, we need to, we really need to be in the moment. I think it's also really important to learn to be reflective without poking our noses into everything that's working so that it stops working because suddenly we start thinking about why it's mm-hmm. working. And I mean, there, there's sort of, um, there are examples about this that are kind of simple where, you know, an athlete who is performing, they're doing their athletic performance and suddenly starts being reflective about, well, why, you know, how am I swinging the bat or um, how am I exactly uh, turning my legs around these pedals? That's going to just screw them up. So uh, similarly, yeah. I think in life, there are things that are going well and you shouldn't, uh, don't, you know, you don't need to be reflective about everything. Well, this goes back to like the work of somebody like, uh, I'm going to massacre his name, but Mihai Csikszentmihalyi and flow and all of that. When when you're in the flow of uh, experience and your your skills and abilities are just barely surpassing the challenge that meets you and you're just kind of in that flow, you don't want to just step outside of it all of a sudden and say, hmm, what's, what can I ponder philosophically about what's going on here? Maybe what's most important there is to experience the flow of competent existence. Yes, that's absolutely right. And I mean, in some ways that seems rather obvious, but on the other hand, being a reflective person has taken a bit of a beating recently, at least in psychology and to some extent in philosophy too. Like Bernard Williams has been very critical of reflection and I think part of the problem is that they just have a, a caricature of what being a reflective person is really like. So that's why I want to argue that being a reflective person doesn't mean thinking all the time. That's that's not a good reflective life. That's a kind of narcissistic self-obsession or rationalistic <laughs> fetishism or, or something like that. Well, Valerie, the standard position or advocation of philosophers is something like, you know, the the unexamined life is not worth living, and it sounds like you're advocating a partially examined life. Yes, I like that. I should have, uh, <laughs> maybe what I should have called my book. <laughs> <laughs> well, Valerie, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks a lot. That was uh, my pleasure as well. In the next episode, I'll be interviewing Leanne Young about... How to Change Moral Judgments with Magnets. So stay tuned for more Conversations from the Pale Blue Dot.